This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. This next story is a war story. America, well, it's made up of great men and women, and we are as good as the people in our country. And America won the Second World War because of men like fearless Freddie Water, whose story we're about to hear. Here's Greg Hengler. There are many incredible stories of courageous men, incredible battles, and heroes during World War II. Rear Admiral Fred Warder, a submarine skipper whose exploits in World War II won him a Navy Cross, and a nickname he detested was average-sized, possessed firm lips, a determined chin with piercing blue eyes under narrowed lids and a smooth face. Warder graduated from the U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis, class of 1925, received his master's in marine engineering at University Cal Berkeley in 1934, was married and the father of four children. Having narrowly avoided the attack on Pearl Harbor, Rear Admiral Warder took charge of the USS Seawolf and set out for the seas of the Pacific to wreak havoc on Japanese shipping and quickly became known as the artist of submarining. Warder fought his enemy hard, but he also respected and loved him. Our American Stories would like to thank Dang Lin Productions for allowing us access to their one-of-a-kind interviews from their recent documentary, Fearless Freddy. Check out the trailer and the film at fearlessfreddymovie.com. Let's begin our deep dive into this story with submarine warfare guru, John Gorham. I attend a church here in Baltimore, Grace Bible Baptist Church, and one of our church members mentioned that she had an uncle named Freddie Warder. And I said, I said, did you say Freddie Warder? And she said, yes. I said, you mean like U.S. submarine captain, Freddie Water? And she says, yes, how'd you know? Nobody knows that. I said, oh, no, to the contrary. He's the ultimate submarine warrior from World War II. He's, he's just it. I, I, most people don't know this, but the vast majority of tonnage that was sunk during World War II, enemy Japanese tonnage, was done by the submarine fleet, what's known as the silent service. These men paid the ultimate price, but something like 55% of all uh, surface supply shipping to the Japanese, both war shipping and merchant marine, were sunk specifically by uh, submarines. So these guys, to me, are the heroes. They were a very small, efficient crew that punched way beyond their weight. Fred Warder really did punch way beyond his weight even at family gatherings. Here's Fearless Freddy's cousin, Ann Warder Lynn. I just know that if there was going to be a brawl, <laughs> Fred was going to you know, punch out the, the biggest man in the room, and he was going to hit him good the first time so he didn't have to go back. Fred wasn't that big, you know, and his brother Frank was big, and uh, he had broad shoulders, and he was, you know, it looked to me like he was at least a foot or maybe more taller than Fred. And Frank was an FBI agent, and Fred just knocked him out. <laughs> 
he got that first punch and that was it and Fred was gone and Frank was down and out and my mother said um, to my father John why do your relatives always have to pass out in our room and my father said pass out nothing that's a KO from Fred <laughs> it was he knocked him out so it seemed to me that Fred fought with men the way he fought the war you know he was the little guy that had to get the big guy and he had to get him with one punch knockout Here's another one of Fred's cousins, Hugh Fordyce. Freddie was uh, the oldest of uh, my Uncle Hugh's family. Uh, they had eight children and he was the oldest. And Freddie was valedictorian of his high school graduating class. I remember him as always ha having a big smile. Always, uh, he had a quick wit about him. Uh, his mother was Irish, you know. And he would make jokes about Catholics, and uh, even though he was a Catholic himself. No one in our family ever called Uncle Fred Fearless or Freddy. He was known as the Admiral, Uncle Fred, Fred. And when my grandmother was feeling particularly stern, Frederick. <laughs> Especially when he was teasing her about drinking or about being Catholic or something. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. Here's former aide of Rear Admiral Fred Warder, Don Ulmer. Well, the instructions that, that came out um, from um, the commander of the Pacific Fleet was, uh, first off, it was the announcement that the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor. And the only instructions they gave was, conduct yourself accordingly. And then, um, uh, shortly after, a message came out saying, um, engage, attack, uh, and sink uh, all enemy shipping uh, encountered. And that was it. Very simple back in those days. The United States had already um, tried to stop the Japanese from uh, colonizing and, and invading the mainland of China and Korea. A lot of misbehavior by the Japanese Empire uh, in these areas that they quote-unquote colonized. They basically invaded them and abused the, the citizens of the nations of Korea and, and China. And you've been listening to the story of fearless Freddie Water, and it's just underappreciated the role that the submarine played in World War II and beyond, and the risks these guys, mostly guys, took. It was all volunteer, always was and is, because it is unique duty, submarine duty, and it's dangerous, and, well, only certain types need apply. If you're claustrophobic, it is not a job for you. When we come back, more of the life of fearless Freddie Water, and we already love the guy, don't we? But wait till you hear the rest of this story here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories and the remarkable story of fearless Freddie Water. Let's return to the story and to Greg Hengel. Here's Stephen Trent Smith, author of Wolfpack, the American submarine strategy that helped defeat Japan. In the late 1920s, Fred went to the submarine school in New London, Connecticut, and after that he was junior officer on a number of U.S. Navy submarines. And in 1939, he was the commanding officer at the commissioning of the USS Seawolf and remained commanding officer of the boat until 1943. Um, War clouds started gathering around 1940, and his submarine was sent to the Pacific and eventually to the Philippines, along with a number of other U.S. submarines. His submarine was at um, the Cavite Naval Yard in Manila Bay in the Philippines on December 8, 1941, when the Japanese attacked the Philippines. They destroyed a couple of submarines not too far away from him. Uh, He got her underway and left Manila Bay and was sent on patrol in the northern Philippines off the coast of Luzon, the east coast of Luzon near a town called Apari. He um, saw a destroyer outside of Pari, the harbor there, and he went to attack it. But then he stumbled on a seaplane tender that was in the harbor, and he decided to uh, attack that. And he got a really good, he made a really good approach. He had everything all set up. He fired four torpedoes from his forward tubes, and none of them exploded. So he turned tail because the destroyer was going to come after him, and but they set up four stern tubes to fire at the seaplane tender, and they fired those, and none of those exploded. And the only thing that exploded that day was Fred Warder, who was furious about the bad torpedoes, and that became a scandal during World War II that for the first couple of years of the war, their torpedoes did not work reliably, and he was just fit to be tied about that. Here is Rear Admiral Fred Warder. If we had torpedoes, we, uh, we could have made a damn fun effort. But we did not have the good torpedoes. Here again is former aide of Rear Admiral Fred Warder, Don Almer. So uh, Admiral Warder knew that the torpedoes were not working well. So he actually went into a place called Davao Gulf, and there was a ship that was anchored there. But he was firing torpedoes at this ship, so one of the torpedoes went under the ship, okay, went up on the beach and exploded. So that was one, you see, it's not my fault, it's torpedoes' fault. And then um, he fired two more and it was thud, thud against the side of the, the, the ship, and uh, they didn't explode, so that, that, that kind of confirmed that. And then um, uh, another one he fired, and uh, it was a, uh, an erratic run called a circular run. The, the, uh, the, the writer's going to lock over in one position. It makes a circular run, and the circular run would bring it right back uh, to about where the uh, machinery compartment is. It would blow, blow the ship up. We did lose a couple of submarines, by the way, but not, uh, but, but not the Seawolf. Uh, uh, when Water uh, anticipated this, uh, and he had his sonar people listening, he knew it was a circular run, he went down, so the torpedo passed overhead and came back up again, and he fired a couple more torpedoes, and um, he um, finished the ship off. Here again is submarine warfare guru John Gorham. Uh, what they did was um, the Japanese uh, preset 
if you've seen in the movies, they look like 55-gallon drums being rolled off the back of the tail of a Corvette or a Destroyer, and they were just basically loaded up with TNT. They would drop to a certain predetermined level based on, and the sensor that was used was a depth sensor based on water pressure, and then they, they would just blow up. And if you had, if you're uh, submarine vessel was nearby when one of those blew up. The shock was such that it could break open the hull or weaken it or, or wrinkle the skin and do all kinds of damage. The vast majority of anyone's submarines that were lost during the war were lost to depth charges. He talked to me one time about um, depth charge evasion uh, and um, the way he, he put it to me is that, well, you got to understand that what the, this Japanese destroyer, the enemy destroyer is doing is he's a uh, making a noise and, and, and he's listening for the echo. Well, uh, the more aspect that you show uh, that ship, uh, the, the stronger the echo. So basically what he would always do uh, is to turn and point directly toward the ship. And that gave him the most narrow aspect. And even though it meant that he was going right toward this guy that was trying to get him, uh, the uh, echoes were, were just not coming back strong. Uh, they would come back weak, which would indicate the, that the, uh, the submarine was much further away. So and the guy would go uh, overhead, and he'd go racing out there, and bang, 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 the charges would go off, and, um, and, the, and, and that's, that was the time uh, that he would make his, uh, his course change or maneuver in order to put distance between him and, the, and that destroyer. But of course, um, uh, if ever you fired a torpedo, the guy knew generally where you were, and then he would come over there and start, you know, banging on you with that sonar and uh, drop depth charges, and it was pretty bad. The strategy the United States Navy had with our uh, submarine service was to go after the merchant marine because they were easy targets. They were soft targets. We could sink them. They couldn't fight back. It allowed our uh, American submarine fleet to last a little longer. It's, it's a little more dangerous when you go after a Japanese warship because they can fight back. And the most deadly warships were corvettes and destroyers because the destroyers are very shallow draft vessels. If you attempt to fire at a torpedo at a, at a uh, well, at least at a Corvette. A Corvette's even smaller than a destroyer. Uh, Corvettes are so shallow that torpedoes go underneath. And you have to be a very good shot to take out a destroyer with a torpedo. The vast m majority of American submarine commanders wouldn't tangle with the destroyer, but that's not the case with Freddie Warder. Submarine commanders were a breed apart. A lot of them had a strong streak of independence. They didn't like being pushed around by admirals and captains, you know, and the submarine service gave them that kind of freedom because when a submarine left port, they had virtually no contact with the admirals and the captains. It was all up to the submarine commander. They didn't have anybody breathing down their necks. Everybody was required to go on seven patrols. And generally the custom was to for a, a captain not to press his luck. Just like in Vietnam, when a guy was down to his last month, he didn't go out on any scary patrols. You don't want to risk a guy's life. If he's made it through a whole year in Nam, you don't want to push your luck at the last minute. But Warder is Warder. And he's determined to make this very last of his patrols count. He was on his way back from the Palau Islands and he discovered another anchorage or an area where there was a tremendous amount of activity. He sailed in, he torpedoed and he was able to sink a 3,000 ton ship. 
Then he sank a transport. Uh, this is very valuable because not only is it tonnage, but it's Japanese fighting troops, men that will never make it to shore and, and, and threaten American lives. A 7,000 ton transport. That was a tremendous prize that he got. Then again, he was able to torpedo, on it, again, on his, on his way coming home, he was able to torpedo another ship to the tune of 3,000 tons. So that means he sank 13,000 tons in one patrol, that's more than the majority of uh, sub-captains ever sank in their entire career of seven patrols in the South Pacific. How Freddie Water got that name Fearless Freddie? He was the last boat out on patrol leaving the Java Sea area, very low on fuel, very low on food, provisions. Um, <laughs> the men were smoking uh, coffee grounds rolled in toilet paper because they'd been out of cigarettes for a while. Anytime you live on a submarine, it's under high stress. This was a very, very difficult time because they're low on fuel. They're low on torpedoes, but Freddie Water wasn't about to go back to his base with unspent torpedoes. Ridiculous. He'd never do that. He found out that the Japanese had invaded the Christmas Islands about 200 miles south of Java and he uh, took his boat down in that way. He decided he'd just patrol the area, cruise around, see what's going on. As he approached Flying Fish Cove, uh, that's the one where the Japanese uh, had their anchorage, uh, it was an absolute submariner's dream. Four cruisers lined up in a row, lined up in a row. And when we come back, we're going to hear the rest of this remarkable story. 13,000 tons in one patrol. The artist of submarining, the ultimate submarine warrior. And we're talking about fearless Freddie Water. His story continues here on Our American Stories. And if you have a war story of your own, a family war story, or one that we should be covering and didn't know about, send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. And I'm talking about from the Revolutionary War straight up to the remarkable and greatest generation, because I call this round of warriors the greatest generation, right up to the present. Again, this is Our American Stories, always telling the stories of our fighting men and women. More after these messages. continue here with our American stories and let's return to Greg Hengler and his story about Rear Admiral Fearless Freddie Water. Here again is submarine warfare guru John Gorham. He found out that the Japanese had invaded the Christmas Islands about 200 miles south of Java and he uh, took his boat down in that way. He decided he'd just patrol the area, cruise around, see what's going on. As he approached Flying Fish Cove, uh, it was an absolute submariner's dream. Four cruisers lined up in a row, lined up in a row. He got in close and uh, destroyers recognized him right away. He heard the pinging, but he fired off four torpedoes 
at a cruiser that was about a thousand yards away and that's about as close as a submariner will ever want to get to his target. So he fired these four torpedoes. As soon as he was convinced that he had sunk that ship, he, he dove low and his logbook reports that uh, the Japanese were very effective in placing their depth charges. So he stayed low and he, he waited uh, uh, overnight. Uh, the next day, and he slipped out of the cove, the next day he slipped back in and the Japanese of course were alerted to him, they were on patrol, but he was able to maneuver in again and nail a second um, cruiser. And again he was uh, depth charged, um, fled the area waited until later on that afternoon he came back in and he struck a cruiser a third time. Captain Water comes in the very next day again because he wants to finish off this juicy collection. He's down to just two torpedoes left. They're on attack mode now because they're just absolutely patrolling the area. The water's boiling with ships going back and forth looking for him. He slips in because he's determined to use up his last torpedoes. There's one more cruiser left. It's flying the pennant of the admiral of the squadron. He says, I'm going to take this guy out. So he fires his last two torpedoes at the cruiser and he hits them. But in the meantime, uh, the destroyers got perilously close to him. He dove down deep and he endured nine hours of depth charge from multiple patrol boats, corvettes, destroyers. Unbelievable. I, that may be the record for the United States Navy for this submarine fleet. Enduring nine hours of well-placed depth charging. And he says in his logbook, he says, my men were really at the end of their rope and he realized he had to go and there's no point in staying around. He had no more torpedoes. He's already taken out all four of the capital ships that were anchored at Flying Fish Cove. And he returned home in victory. And on the way, the men said, we're gonna call you Fearless Freddy from now on after what we saw you do. Here again is former aide of Rear Admiral Fred Warder, Don Ulmer. He later came back uh, as what they call a, a division commander or a Wolfpack commander. And that was after he was relieved by uh, Lieutenant Commander Royce Gross. He went into Christmas Island uh, because uh, they knew the Japanese were going to come there uh, in order to uh, you know, take advantage of the potassium. At the time, there were nothing but Aboriginal people uh, that were there. And uh, to give you some feel for Aboriginal water, uh, uh, he got there before the Japanese did, and uh, there were facilities uh, there, uh, docking, that sort of thing. And uh, someone suggested that, well, maybe it's a good idea if we go in there and blow all that up. Uh, well, now, you got to understand, these. this is a war going on, uh, and these are just Aboriginal people. You would think that, you know, who, who really cares about them? Uh, Order did. And he said, no. He said, we're not going to go in there and blow anything up. He says, because uh, these people need this to make a living there, and we don't want to hurt them. I guess later on I, I learned from um, uh, the person who succeeded him in command of the, the Sea Wolf, uh, Royce Gross, that he sunk a, a Japanese merchant ship uh, not far from uh, that, that place. Uh, it went down, there were two survivors in the water and the water wanted to bring them on board and one of them blew himself up with a hand grenade and the other was uh, he just refused to come because uh, the Japanese culture at the time, you do not surrender, you, you died for the emperor and the warders figured he needed something, uh, so um, he actually uh, he tossed him a life jacket and a, and a fifth of bourbon, 
uh, the Japanese acknowledged with a nod, and, uh, but uh, from what Warder could tell that he was, uh, you know, uh, carried out to sea and ultimately was lost. Here again is Stephen Trent Smith, author of Wolfpack, the American submarine strategy that helped defeat Japan. When he was uh, patrolling down in the Java Sea area, he sunk a Japanese ship and he surfaced and discovered a lot of Japanese just floating in the water without life jackets. So he had the crew, his crew, throw as many life jackets as they could to help the surviving sailors. He saw them as an enemy. I mean, the Japanese is truly an enemy because of what they had done, particularly at Pearl Harbor. But he believed that your enemy is also your brother. To be a successful captain, you have to have a crew that will obey you, and you have to have a crew that respects you enough to risk their lives, because he isn't called Fearless Freddy for nothing. He would take risks that almost no other submarine captain did. Well, some of them took risks, and they just didn't live to tell about it, which is understandable. That's why they call it a risk. Um, but Freddy absolutely earned that title of being called Fearless. He absolutely was uh, fearless. And his men would go to the gates of hell and back for him. He had their utmost respect. Here again is Fearless Freddy's cousin, Ann Warder Lynn. He really did believe in a hard war and an easy peace. Um, he wanted the war to be fought hard and fast and be over with so that humanity could get back to being humanity because he, I never really heard him say an ugly thing about anyone. I never heard anyone say he said an ugly thing about another person. If you were with him, you just felt like you were the only person on earth. He really made people feel his warmth. I, do, I mean, you just really wanted him to be proud of you. Uh, you were proud to be with him and you wanted him to be proud of you. And uh, he's one of my fondest childhood memories, actually. He went on to earn uh, two Navy crosses. Of course, he got a uh, Legion of Merit. He got two of those, a Navy Commendation Medal, Navy Achievement Medal, and uh, then the usual ones, the Victory Medal, uh, Philippine Service Medal, and uh, Asiatic Pacific Medal. From what I've read in his obituary and been told by my father, Uncle Fred really didn't like the name Fearless Freddy because he was just as afraid as anybody else on the submarine and his crew. And his crew were his heroes, whom he fondly referred to as his beloved sons of you-know-what. And uh, he felt and said that the real heroes in war are those that give their lives. Here again is Rear Admiral Fred Warder. How did you get the name Fearless? <laughs> uh, well, I don't like it. Uh, one, I'm scared to death. Really? I mean, when I shoot torpedoes, I'm scared. Fred Warder became Assistant Chief of Naval Operations for Undersea Warfare in 1955. He commanded the Submarine Force Atlantic Fleet in 1957 and retired in 1962 after two years as Commandant of the 8th Naval District in New Orleans. He retired in 1962 and died at his home on February 1st, 2000. He was 95 years old. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. 
And special thanks to Dang Lin Productions for allowing us access to their one-of-a-kind interviews from their recent documentary, Fearless Freddy. Check out the trailer and the film at fearlessfreddymovie.com. That's fearlessfreddymovie.com. And what a story we heard indeed. This Annapolis grad class of 1925, married father of four, and a leader. And in the end, a soldier underground, in a tin can, far underground, and doing things that, wow, are unimaginable, really difficult things. And he loved the idea of leading his men, but did not love being called Fearless Freddy. Because anyone who's fearless, well, they're scary. He rose above his fear and led anyway. And that's why he was the man he was, the artist of submarining, the ultimate submarine warrior, Freddie Water, fearless Freddie Water, his story here on Our American Story. Habib and this is Our American Stories. The Old Man in the Sea is a short novel written by Ernest Hemingway in 1951 in Cuba and published in 52. It was the last major work of fiction by Hemingway. It's one of his most famous works and it tells the story of Santiago, an aging fisherman who struggles with a giant marlin far out in the Gulf Stream off the coast of Cuba. We join Santiago at the climax of this American classic, with a dramatic reading by the great Charlton Heston. For an hour, the old man had been seeing black spots before his eyes, and the sweat salted his eyes and salted the cut over his eye and on his forehead. He was not afraid of the black spots. They were normal at the tension that he was pulling on the line. Twice, though, he had felt faint and dizzy, and that had worried him. I could not fail myself and die on a fish like this, he said. Now that I have him coming so beautifully, God help me endure. I'll say a hundred Our Fathers and a hundred Hail Marys, but I cannot say them now. Consider them said, he thought. I'll say them later. Just then he felt a sudden banging and jerking on the line he held with his two hands. It was sharp and hard-feeling and heavy. He's hitting the wire leader with his spear, he thought. That was bound to come. He had to do that. It may make him jump, though. I would rather he stayed circling now. The jumps were necessary for him to take air. But after that, each one can widen the opening of the hook wound, and he can throw the hook. Don't jump, fish, he said. Don't jump. The fish hit the wire several times more, and each time he shook his head, the old man gave up a little line. I must hold his pain where it is, he thought. Mine does not matter. I can control mine but his pain could drive him mad. After a while, the fish stopped beating at the wire and started circling slowly again. The old man was gaining line steadily now, but he felt faint again. He lifted some seawater with his left hand and put it on his head. Then he put more on and rubbed the back of his neck. I have no cramps, he said. He'll be up soon, and I can last. You have to last. Don't even speak of it. He kneeled against the bow and for a moment slipped the line over his back again. 
I'll rest now when he goes out in the circle and then stand up and work on him when he comes in, he decided. It was a great temptation to rest in the bow and let the fish make one circle by himself without recovering any line. But when the strain showed the fish had turned to come toward the boat, the old man rose to his feet and started the pivoting and the weaving pulling that brought in all the line he gained. I'm tireder than I have ever been, he thought. And now the trade wind is rising. But that will be good to take him in with. I need that badly. I'll rest on the next turn as he goes out, he said. I feel much better. Then in two or three turns more, I will have him. His straw hat was far in the back of his head, and he sank down into the bow with a pull of the line as he felt the fish turn. You work now, fish, he thought. I'll take you at the turn. The sea had risen considerably, but it was a fair weather breeze, and he had to have it to get home. I'll just steer south and west, he said. A man is never lost at sea, and it is a long island. It was on the third turn that he saw the fish first. He saw him first as a dark shadow that took so long to pass under the boat that he could not believe its length. No, he said. He can't be that big. But he was that big. And at the end of this circle, he came to the surface only 30 yards away. And the man saw his tail out of water. It was higher than a big scythe blade and a very pale lavender above the dark blue water. It raked back, and as the fish swam just below the surface, the old man could see his huge bulk and the purple stripes that banded him. His dorsal fin was down and his huge pectorals were spread wide. On this circle, the old man could see the fish's eye and the two gray sucking fish that swam around him. Sometimes they attached themselves to him. Sometimes they darted off. Sometimes they would swim easily in his shadow. They were each over three feet long, and when they swam fast, they lashed their whole bodies like eels. The old man was sweating now, but from something else besides the sun. On each calm, placid turn the fish made, he was gaining line, and he was sure that in two turns more he would have a chance to get the harpoon in. But I must get him close, 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 he thought. I mustn't try for the head, I must get the heart. Be calm and strong, old man, he said. On the next circle, the fish's back was out, but he was a little too far from the boat. On the next circle, he was still too far away, but he was higher out of water, and the old man was sure that by gaining some more line, he could have him alongside. He'd rigged his harpoon long before, and its coil of light rope was in a round basket, and the end was made fast to the bit in the bow. The fish was coming in on his circle now, calm and beautiful looking, and only his great tail moving. The old man pulled on him all that he could to bring him closer. For just a moment, the fish turned a little on his side. Then he straightened himself and began another circle. I moved him, the old man said. I moved him then. He felt faint again now, but he held on the great fish all the strain that he could. I moved him, he thought. Maybe this time I can get him over. Pull hands, he thought. Hold up, legs. Last for me, head, last for me. You never went. This time I'll pull him over. But when he put all of his effort on, starting it well out before the fish came alongside and pulling with all his strength, the fish pulled part way over and then righted himself and swam away. Ish, 
The old man said, Fish, you're going to have to die anyway. You have to kill me too. That way nothing is accomplished, he thought. His mouth was too dry to speak, but he could not reach for the water now. I must get him alongside this time, he thought. I'm not good for many more turns. Yes, you are, he told himself. You're good forever. On the next turn, he nearly had him. But again, the fish righted himself and swam slowly away. You are killing me, fish, the old man thought. But you have a right to. Never have I seen a greater or more beautiful or a calmer or more noble thing than you, brother. Come on and kill me. I do not care who kills who. Now, you're getting confused in the head, he thought. You must keep your head clear. Keep your head clear and know how to suffer like a man. Or a fish, he thought. Clear up, head, he said in a voice he could hardly hear. Clear up. Twice more it was the same on the turns. I do not know... The old man thought. He'd been in the point of feeling himself go each time. I do not know. But I will try it once more. He tried it once more and he felt himself going when he turned the fish. The fish righted himself and swam off again slowly with a great tail weaving in the air. I'll try it again, the old man promised although his hands were mushy now, and he could only see well in flashes. He tried it again, and it was the same. So he thought, and he felt himself going before he started, I will try it once again. He took all his pain and what was left of his strength and his long-gone pride, and he put it against the fish's agony, and the fish came over onto his side and swam gently on his side, his bill almost touching the planking of the skiff, and started to pass the boat, long, deep, wide, silver, and barred with purple, and interminable in the water. The old man dropped the line and put his foot on it and lifted the harpoon as high as he could and drove it down with all his strength and more strength he had just summoned into the fish's side just behind the great chest fin that rose high in the air to the altitude of the man's chest. He felt the iron go in and he leaned on it and drove it further and then pushed all his weight after it. Then the fish came alive with his death in him and rose high out of the water, showing all his great length and width and all his power and his beauty. He seemed to hang in the air above the old man in the skiff. Then he fell into the water with a crash that sent spray over the old man and over all of the skiff. The old man felt faint and sick, and he could not see well. But he cleared the harpoon line and let it run slowly through his raw hands. And when he could see, he saw the fish was on his back with his silver belly up. The shaft of the harpoon was projecting at an angle from the fish's shoulder, and the sea was discoloring with the red of the blood from his heart. First it was dark as a shoal in the blue water that was more than a mile deep. Then it spread like a cloud. The fish was silvery and still and floated with the waves. 
The old man looked carefully in the glimpse of vision that he had. Then he took two turns of the harpoon line around the bit in the bow and laid his head in his hands. Keep my head clear, he said against the wood of the bow. I am a tired old man, but I have killed this fish, which is my brother. And now I must do the slave work. And what a reading of a great, great American novel, Charlton Heston, the late, great Charlton Heston. In 1953, The Old Man in the Sea was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for Fiction, and it was cited by the Nobel Committee as contributing to their awarding of the Nobel Prize in Literature to Hemingway in 1954. The Old Man in the Sea, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we're, well, just a couple of hours east of Oxford, Mississippi, where we broadcast, is a town called Muscle Shoals, Alabama, and you just heard Leonard Skinner reference, Leonard Skinner reference this place in their iconic song. Well, southeast of Memphis and southwest of Nashville, this little town has created a very big sound. Some of the biggest names in soul, funk, pop, rock, country, every genre in between have recorded there, and our own Jesse Edwards brings us a front row seat. In the late 1950s, a young fiddle player from Mississippi by the name of Rick Hall hit paydirt when George Jones, Brenda Lee, and Roy Orbson began recording songs that he had written. He moved to Florence, Alabama, home of legendary record producer Sam Phillips, and opened a primitive recording studio above the city drugstore. With the typical egg crates on the walls, uh, car- uh, carpet that we would got out of a theater, etc., etc. Uh, and we began to cut little demos and write songs. Soon, Rick had recorded his first hit with Arthur Alexander's You Better Move On in 1961. Rick would use studio musicians from Nashville to accompany the singer. Arthur had uh, written several tunes, but he couldn't play an instrument, so he had to pop his fingers and sing the song a cappello. And uh, so consequently, uh, he brought me a tune called You Better Move On and asked me what I thought. And of course, immediately I began, I was intrigued by Benny King, Stand By Me, and the Jacksons and people like that, uh, and the beat was boom, 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 boom. That was a very popular beat up on the roof. A lot of <clears throat> drifters, coasters, a lot of people had those, had that groove, and that song to me fit that groove. And he said, "What do you think?" I said, "I think it's a hit. I think we should cut it on you, right away." He said, "That's great." So we went in the studio with four microphones and a Berlant recorder, a small little Berlant recorder, used the bathroom for an echo chamber, and uh, and we proceeded to cut it. You asked me to give up the hand of the girl I love. 
You tell me I'm not the man she's worthy of But who are you to tell her who to love That's up to her Yes, and the Lord above You better move on Better move on. After recording You Better Move On, Rick Hall now had to sell it to a major record company, something that's not exactly easy to do without street cred. I took it to Nashville because I didn't have any ends with New York, L.A., or any of the major cities, Philadelphia or uh, New Orleans, uh, and I was a country boy, no money, and no means to do anything. So I took it up there thinking I might be able to make a deal on it with the master. Uh, played to seven record label executives, uh, the Chad Adkins, the Owen Bradleys, Shelby Singletons, the Don Laws, etc., etc., but not knowing that they were strictly country people and didn't know anything about R&B or black music. Nashville was all country, and they turned down the song. But Rick Hall kept trying until a friendly DJ passed the track on to Randy Wood, founder of Dot Records. After it reached number 24 on Billboard in March of 62, Hall took the proceeds from that recording to build the sound studio on Avalon Avenue in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. The city of Muscle Shoals is one of four towns grouped together with a combined population around 60,000, the other towns being Florence, Sheffield, and Tuscumbia. Helen Keller was born here, and so was legendary record producer Sam Phillips, who launched the careers of Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash, and so many others out of his famous Sun Studio in Memphis, 150 miles to the west. Sam Phillips was also one of Rick Hall's early mentors, which helps explain how Rick began turning this relatively obscure place into the self-proclaimed recording capital of the world. Armed with one gold record under his belt and new facilities in Muscle Shoals at famed studios, Rick Hall set out to record another album. In 1963, he produced the first hit in that building with Steal Away by Jimmy Hughes. I've got to see you Somehow Not tomorrow Right now I know it's late Whoa, I can't wait So come on and steal away had considerably more confidence in my abilities as a producer and thought maybe I'd found my stick. And I found Jimmy Hughes, who was working at a rubber plant here, Robbins Rubber Company in Muscle Shoals. He brought me a song called Steal Away that he'd written. I cut it and it was a hit, smash. To make a long story short, I had to press it up on my own label and promote it myself and go to all the black disc jockeys, New Orleans, Memphis, uh, Atlanta, Miami, by car, and do the promoting. But it became a very big smash record with VJ Records, and that, that started my black music career. Of course, I had been intrigued as a songwriter, a musician, and played all of those things that Ernie Cado and all the big acts, the black acts, that were selling a lot of records to the white audiences. And I was intrigued by it, and it was my stick. I, I loved it, still do, always will. Jimmy Hughes recorded the song in one take, backed by studio musicians, arranged by Rick Hall, 
the track hit number 17 on Billboard's Hot 100. With two hit records to his name, Rick Hall had now proven that his first hit wasn't a fluke. And when we come back, the legend of the Muscle Shoals sound continues right here on Our American Stories. To hear everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Enjoy unlimited access to every story. Share it with your friends and follow us on Facebook at OurAmericanNetwork.org. Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Fame Studios, and the Muscle Shoals sound. Here's Jesse. Alabama in 1963 wasn't exactly known as a time or place for racial harmony. The newly elected governor, George Wallace, had openly called for segregation in his inaugural address. And I say segregation now, segregation tomorrow. It was also the year of the Birmingham campaign. Protesters led by Martin Luther King were arrested for parading without a permit. We own the move now. The beating and killing of our clergymen and young people will not divert us. We own the move now. Yes, the weapon release of their known murderers will not discourage us. We own the move now. Yes, Thousands of African Americans, many of them children, are arrested for protesting segregation. Fire hoses and police dogs were used against them. It was a dark chapter in American history. But back in this other little corner of the state, at Rick Hall's famed studios in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, the very same year, blacks and whites were integrating in ways that would shape the history of American music forever. Fame Studios was now a hotbed for soul singers who wanted Rick Hall to record their songs using his Muscle Shoals rhythm section, also known as the Swampers, as the backing band. We in the music business are colorblind. Uh, I think most of the arts are colorblind. We never, some of my best friends in life, today and then, were black people. you got to remember, this was in the 60s. And this was when uh, George Wallace was standing in the schoolhouse door at the University of Alabama. It's when the National Guard came to Arkansas. These are, these are tough times, and they didn't, uh, black people I had no problem with. If I had a problem with anybody, it was white people who didn't like me socializing or recording black music in Alabama with this all going on. But I never had any problem with it. Uh, not here, I had more trouble when I went to LA or New York than I had in, in, in the studio or in Alabama or on concerts and things of that nature. Singer-songwriters would come in, Rick's session players would back the artist, and they'd lay down some funky tracks, turn it into cash. They were so good, it was like printing money. And the hits just kept coming. 
Rick Hall produces Etta James' Tell Mama. You thought you hadn't found a good girl One to love you and give you the world Now you find that you've been misused Talk to me, I'll do what you choose I want you to tell mama This was the biggest hit of her career. The next big hit to come out of Fame Studios was When a Man Loves a Woman by Percy Sledge. Rick Hall knew that he had a big fat hit with When a Man Loves a Woman, so he ran it past legendary record producer Jerry Wexler at Atlantic Records. I found the master and sent it to him, and he called me and said he didn't think it was a hit. I said, you're crazy. It's a smash, Jerry. All you got to do is hide and watch. And he said, uh, well, send it up. Uh, so I sent it up, and he listened to it. He said, I don't, I, don't think, I don't think it's a hit. Are you sure you think this is a hit? I said, it's a smash. I bet my life on it. Number one. Not number two, number one. Wexler reluctantly agreed to release the song on Atlantic under the condition that it be re-recorded because the horns at the end of the track were slightly out of tune. The horn players were fired, the song was re-recorded, but the tapes got mixed up. Atlantic released the original version in April of 66 by mistake. Sledge's recording becomes the first number one hit recorded in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Now that Rick Hall had established himself as a player in the music business, Jerry Wexler started bringing bigger and bigger acts down to Muscle Shoals. I had Wilson Pickett signed up, and for a year we just couldn't seem to make any headway. Uh, the songs that I brought him he didn't like, the songs that he wanted to record didn't strike me as being suitable. So I took Wilson Pickett to Muscle Shoals, and there was just... A listing of chords, chord progressions, no rhythm pattern, nothing, just chords. And we put the record together by the musicians playing the music and playing into a pattern. And the first thing we cut was Land of a Thousand Dances, which was enormous. And the energy and the scenario of that record, it, to me, is wonderful to this day, the projection. Just something that comes, that leaps out of a record. I call it the sonority of the record, that it's different from the rhythm. It's not exactly the sound. It's not the songs. It's the gestalt. It's the way the sound of the record impacts on the ear instantly. And to me, that's the magic ingredient in a phonograph record. If you can convey that, it can't be defined or explained, but it's something that just grabs you. And so from then on, Muscle Shoals became the place that I preferred to go and loved to go. Jerry Wexler then introduced Aretha Franklin. He said, you know, I've got this great little studio down in um, Muscle Shoals, and these cats, are, these cats are really greasy. You're going to love it. Aretha had made nine albums while under contract to Columbia Records, but she wasn't selling. When they let her contract lapse in 66, Wexler signed her to Atlantic and flew her directly to Muscle Shoals in 1967. We did what we called head sessions at that time, and there was no real music written for it. 
The musicians would just listen to what it was I was doing, and then they would decide what they were going to do around that. I Never Loved a Man rose to number nine on the Hot 100 and became Franklin's first number one hit on the R&B charts. Franklin became a superstar after this recording. Rick Hall recorded the song in 20 minutes. But it was only after a tense moment in the studio, and you have to appreciate the context here. Aretha was in the deep south during the mid-60s with a room full of sweaty white good old boys that she had never met, all while being asked to cut a hit record on the spot. No pressure, right? After an awkward moment of silence, one of the house musicians, Spooner Oldham, started playing the opening riff on a keyboard. And that's the sound of our tour guide playing the exact same Wurlitzer piano used on the record. You can come here to Fame Studios today and hear it for yourself. So it's really cool, y'all. It makes me sound like I know what I'm doing, which I need a lot of help. I know, isn't it beautiful? It's like R&B in a box. It's just amazing. Our guide does a little of everything here at Fame Studios. So my name is Spencer Coates. I'm the studio assistant here. I've been here for about four and a half years, and I'm just one of like the everything guys around here. I'm one of the engineers. Uh, primarily do the assistant engineering in the room. Um, but, you know, I just help out with all like the tours. I sell merch uh, and really just try to make sure that anybody that comes inside Fame really has a great time and... Uh, it's a fun gig. Other than that, you know, at night we're all songwriting, making records, and just trying to do everything we possibly can to get a little taste of what everybody else that we see on the walls every single day had. So it's a, it's a blast. It really is. Fame Studio Tours run six days a week, no reservations, at 10 bucks per person. And it's a functioning studio that's recently been used by artists like Jason Isbell and Steven Tyler. I could get into a long list of every rock star who's come and gone around here, but it would be too long. Just assume that anybody who's anybody in the music industry has recorded here, wants to record here, or plans to record here. Dwayne Allman once pitched a tent in the parking lot just to be close to the action. He became friends with Rick Hall and ended up showing Wilson Pickett how to play Hey Jude. They recorded it in 1968. After hearing the recording, Jerry Wexler asked Rick Hall who was playing lead guitar. Rick told him, some hippie cat who's been living in our parking lot. Shortly afterward, Allman was offered a recording contract. Ow! And when we come back, the legend of the Muscle Shoals sound continues here on Our American Story.
is Our American Stories. And we're back with our story about Muscle Shoals. And we were all laughing in the studio. Jerry Wexler asks Rick Hall, who's that guy playing guitar on that track? And he says, oh, some hippie kid living in the parking lot. And that was Dwayne Allman, folks, and the start of one of the great American blues and rock bands, the Allman Brothers Band and the creation of Southern Rock. And now we return to the story of this small town that rose up to be a big, big music town in this country. Here again is Jesse. The Muscle Shoals rhythm section that worked for Rick Hall at Fame Studios became known as the Swampers. In 1969, they left Rick Hall to create their own recording company known as the Muscle Shoals Sound Studios. Rick Hall felt betrayed, but there was nothing he could do about his house band setting up their own recording studio across town. But he eventually gets over it. The Swampers set up shop inside of an old coffin showroom on Jackson Highway in Sheffield, Alabama. They get straight to work by recording Brown Sugar by the Rolling Stones, Paul Simon's Kodachrome, and the Staple Singers, I'll Take You There. That's just to name a few of the first big hits to come out of this new studio. Aretha Franklin, Wilson Pickett, Willie Nelson, Leonard Skinner, Joe Cocker, Bob Seger, Rod Stewart, Cat Stevens. All of them would record here between 69 and 79. The studio moved in 1979 and the building was shut down until 2013 when a $1 million grant from an unlikely source allowed a complete restoration of the studios. That million dollar donation came in from rapper Dr. Dre, who just happened to appreciate the music and the history that's come out of this little building. Just like famed studios across town, Muscle Shoals Sound Studios has recorded the soundtracks to many of our lives. And you can come here and experience it for yourself. You can even use the famous toilet that has seated rock royalty from Keith Richards to Bob Dylan. On any given day, you might even just run into one of the original Swampers. If you didn't know what they look like, you'd probably miss them. Because they look just like ordinary, everyday Americans. But the lives they've lived and the stories that they can tell are anything but ordinary. Jimmy Johnson is an original Swamper. And he's performed with Wilson Pickett, Aretha Franklin, and countless others. He also engineered three tracks on the Rolling Stones album, Sticky Fingers. I started playing guitar because of Chuck Berry. Uh, Before that, my dad, a country music player, had tried to influence me to play, and I I had no interest because I didn't like country music. I like R&B, blues, and jazz, certain types of jazz that don't get too wild. By the time I got influenced by that, uh, by Chuck Berry, I heard him on the radio playing Johnny B. Good. And when I heard that, I said, I've got to learn how to do that. And I did. There was no schools, no uh, place to go to learn, you know, how to play on sessions or anything. There was no, uh, back then, we didn't even have charts. I did learn how to read number charts, and that's what we used on sessions uh, from New York, L.A., Nashville, Memphis, everywhere, and here. First time I got paid, I was about 11 years old. 
I played at the Tuscumbia Armory square dance. Half the night was square dance music, and half the night on Saturday nights was rock and roll. And so I made 10 bucks. I had no clue that I could do this for a career. But uh, I got into a band. Our band was called the Delrays. And we started playing colleges when I was still in high school. At that time, when I started, there was no studios around. And, uh, and the ones in Nashville were very hard to, to get involved with. It was like uh, almost impossible. For some reason, of which I'm thankful for today, we never had to leave. And uh, instead of going to New York, L.A., Nashville, London, wherever, they came to us. And we felt blessed that that happened. Uh, when we first started, nobody ever used the geographic name Muscle Shows for anything except aluminum. When we decided to name our studio, once we started it, we finally settled on Muscle Show Sound Studios. And then we had to name the rhythm section, which we named it basically the same thing. David Hood is another original swamper who started his career as a backup musician at Fame Studios. He went on to co-found Muscle Shoals Sound Studio with Jimmy Johnson, where they produced songs for Willie Nelson, Cher, all sorts of others. He played bass for Boz Skaggs and Aretha Franklin, Cat Stevens, Paul Simon, Bob Seger, Traffic, the Staple Singers, Etta James, Percy Sledge. You get the picture. I saw my first bass guitar, which is my instrument, at the... Uh... Naval Reserve, which is a facility in Sheffield that we later bought and put our recording studios in, but they would have dances there. And uh, I was in the room, and I'd hear this doom, 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 and I would go up and look at the band. There were two guitar players there, and I'd think, well, what's making that noise? And I'd go back to the back of the room, because that's where you heard the bass, and then hear it, and I'd finally realized that one of those instruments was larger than the other one, and it was the bass guitar. And I was in high school before I knew that the instrument I make my living with even existed. I started late, I guess you could say, because most of the people I work with have been playing since they were 10, 12 years old, and I started playing uh, the bass at around 18. After a couple years with this band, it was uh, the Mystics with Terry Woodford, was seeing uh, Terry's father put up the money for us to come here to Fame Studio and rent the studio for, uh, I think it was a Sunday afternoon. And uh, we recorded two things there, and that was my first recording. And I saw then that, wow, I love this. The recording, that's what it, where it's at. The playing live is okay, but it involves a lot of travel and lifting amplifiers and things like that. When you go in the recording studio, you're just you're there to make music. And I really was turned on immediately to the idea that you would record something and listen back and hear it and think, hmm, well, I need to fix that. And I, so I think early my career in, mu in uh, recorded music was the direction for me. Now, Kevin Hawley is a longtime guitar player for Little Richard, and he was recorded with Dwayne Allman and many others. He became a swamper in 1991. A typical session here. I mean, if you if you're say you're a singer and you come in Muscle Shoals and you hire the A team, 
They'll listen to the demo. They'll write a chart out. And without rehearsing it, they'll just count it off. And then it just happens. A lot of artists will come here thinking that they're going to get this Muscle show sound. And that's not necessarily the case. You know, you can't force it. You know, it happens naturally. You bring any artist from any genre to Muscle Shoals and use Muscle Shoals players, it's going to sound like Muscle Shoals. If you bring a bunch of guys from Los Angeles here to record, it's going to probably still sound like L.A. But to me, the feeling here, you know, is with the musicians that, that play here. When we return, more of the Muscle Shoals sound. Fame Studios and the musicians who made it all happen, right here on Our American Stories. To hear everything that we do on Our American Stories, visit us online at ouramericannetwork.org. Enjoy unlimited access to every story Share it with your friends and follow us on Facebook at OurAmericanNetwork.org. American Stories, and you're listening to the stories of legendary fame studios and the Muscle Shoals sound. And we've been listening to the voices of the session players, who so often go unnoticed and underappreciated once a record becomes a hit. And now we return to our own Jesse Edwards. The definitive Muscle Shoals documentary came out in 2013 titled Muscle Shoals. If you haven't seen it, order it online. It's incredible. But unfortunately, just five years after its release, the father of Muscle Shoals music, Rick Hall, passed away on January 2nd of 2018 at 85 years old. During his music career, he recorded almost every genre of music from country to R&B, and he's responsible for roughly 350 million album sales worldwide. But the spirit of this place lives on. And it's crawling with world-class musicians who have recorded some of the best music that life has to offer. Will McFarlane has been playing guitar for over 40 years professionally, six of those with Bonnie Raitt. Now, he's part of the Muscle Shoals Rhythm Section. That's some really nice gigs. Really apprenticed in Bonnie Raitt's band. I was in her band for five, six years. Toured with her all through the 70s. And... Uh, Got married and had kids, and L.A. just wasn't the place to live, and I met some folks from here. I met Jimmy Johnson in a hotel room in L.A., and uh, he asked me to play him some songs, and I'd always loved Muscle Shoals music, and just uh, came down here to demo a couple. He said, I'd like to demo that song, so they graciously flew me down here from L.A., and 
wasn't in a traffic jam for three days and just uh, the beautiful river and the area. And I flew back to L.A. And the first time it took me, you know, four hours to go 38 miles. I just said, this is not living. And I packed up my family and moved here in 1980, where I was fortunately became part of the rhythm section. Really, I became a friend of the Swampers, as it's called, and uh, worked with them for 20 years. Well, you know, one of the things that uh, I think drew me to Muscle Shoals uh, was that you know, if you hear Memphis, and I love Memphis, but if you hear Sam and Dave or Otis Water, you go, that was cut in Memphis. Or you hear Motown, you go, that was cut in Detroit. But the same band did I'll Take You There, Old Time Rock and Roll, Kodachrome, and Torn Between Two Lovers, <laughs> and Low Spark of High Heel Boys. I mean, how versatile is that? And so you didn't always immediately know, but there was some intangible, it was some place in the pocket that all of those things I just mentioned to you have an amazing feel. And that's another thing about Muscle Shoals. One of the mantras here is less is more. They're never overproduced. It's never, you're never smashed in the face with everybody, everybody's every thought. It's just generally, you know, when you listen to When a Man Loves a Woman and, and a Do Right Woman or those things, they, the song breathes. You hear the song, you hear the artist. And, and that's what I was drawn to, especially after all my years with Bonnie where you know, what was she? She wasn't country. She wasn't straight blue. You know what I mean? She was just this versatile, you know, combination of all of our influences that we loved the most. And I just felt Muscle Shoals was a perfect fit for the way I played and the way I thought and the kind of music I loved. Putting your finger on what makes music that comes out of Muscle Shoals sound the way that it does can be difficult even for the Swampers themselves. But Will McFarlane has a pretty good idea of where it comes from. The wonderful stuff about the guitar playing out of Muscle Shoals is most of it's only two notes at a time. You know, it's not these big driving things. You hear people go, oh, excuse me, <laughs> you know, you know, that kind of thing, you know, beautiful things. So you'd hear, uh, you know, I'd be doing a Bobby Bland record maybe or something, and it'd just be... You know, something. Sometimes the artist would go, give me a few love licks. You know, and he'd want, or, you know, or really, you know, that kind of two-stop thing where you hear, you'll hear when a man loves a woman, you The guitar player just plays very few notes, and that's one of the things I really love about it, is the minimalistic approach. What I really feel like the Muscle Shoals mentality is, if people hear a great song, and the artist is right there in front of them, they're saying, how can we be your band? We want to capture you, we don't want you to, we don't want to make a record for you that, that sounds like so-and-so went to Muscle Shoals. We want to make the record for you that you hear in your head. But in Muscle Shoals, I think one of the great intangibles is, is that I really believe every musician in this town that hears a song and sees an artist that we all respect, we go, how can we help you to so dig your, your music in this town? We're going to lay our preset and our musical egos down, and we're going to let the song shine. We want the artist to shine. Walt Aldridge worked at Fame Recording Studio for 17 years under Rick Hall as a producer, songwriter, and backup musician. He's written dozens of hit country songs, including five number ones. 
Songwriting picked me as opposed to me picking it. I, I was lucky to have a guy named Rick Hall who was sort of my teacher and mentor. I came out of school thinking that I wanted to be a session guitar player and then I heard some real session guitar players and went out and I always say tied my guitar on the back of my car and dragged it home. You know? But he always encouraged me to, to engineer and do everything that I possibly could and, and I did. And it has served me well, but along with that I was just writing songs at night and trying to learn about that craft. All of a sudden I had a song recorded and it became a hit by Ronnie Millsap and people were calling me to, to write songs for them or write songs with them and I said, hey, I, I think I could do this. And so while I never quit doing those other things, that sort of became my specialty is writing songs. That number one hit that he wrote for Ronnie Millsap, There's No Getting Over Me, hit number one on the country charts in 1981 and number five on the Hot 100. Well, you can walk out on me tonight If you think that it ain't feeling right But darling, there ain't no getting over me Like so many other session players here in Muscle Shoals, Alabama, Walt Aldridge is often asked what it is about this place that makes it so special when it comes to recording hit records. I'm not sure I have an answer, but maybe an even more appropriate question might be, why has it continued since the scene developed here at Muscle Shoals? It's consistently had music makers and creators that have been an important part of the, the international and global music scene as writers, as musicians, as artists, as producers, as engineers, studio owners, and what have you. During that time, you had Detroit and Memphis and Macon and a lot of other outposts other than Nashville and L.A. and New York that became important recording centers, but they're gone. It's still here. I mean, we still have important music being made here, and that is the intriguing question to me is how has it continued when those other places have come and gone? I don't know that I or anyone else has the answer to that question other than the fact that the people here seem to have a really fierce commitment to that history, heritage, and to the process of mentoring or passing it on down to the next generation. I think that the muscle shows sound, if there is one traditionally, has always been a, it's a combination of, of, of blues and country music. Uh, those that really are devotees or students of the music know that there have been several eras to Muscle Shoals music. There was that, and then there was certainly the rock era that, that had Bob Seger and the Stones and Paul Simon and a lot of things that were cut in this actual room that we're sitting in. And then you have all the songwriting that has happened. I mean, an incredible number of hit songs that have been accounted for by writers living and working here in the Shoals area. But I think when the question is asked of me of what is the Muscle Shoals sound, I always think of that rhythm section sound of the 60s, which was predominantly white guys playing their interpretation of soul music. But it also had a little something else. It had a little funk to it, a little blues, a little rural, uh, homespun, organic quality that was not being made in uh, Memphis, Macon, other areas that were making, uh, Detroit, Philadelphia, other areas that were making soul music. The hundreds of recordings that came from the Muscle Shoals area have influenced the way people all over the world appreciate American music. And it's all thanks to one man, Rick Hall. If you're ever in the northern Alabama area and you have any interest in the history of American music recording, put this place on your bucket list if it isn't there already. You're guaranteed to get chills up your arm and up the back of your neck every time you enter one of these sacred studios for the very first time.
for Our American Stories in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. I'm Jesse Edwards. Something tells me you would have stayed another month there, Jesse, and maybe never come back. I'm glad you're back. And what a piece of, well, let's just say reporting, if we can call it that. And do go to Muscle Shoals. It's the river. It's the space. It's that small town feel, too. Don't ever forget it. The musician said over and over again that minimalistic approach. But they lead minimalistic lives, folks. That's what they do. And they lead the lives so many other Americans live in small town America. Minimalistic spaces. Less is more. You heard them say that over and over again. A couple of notes on a guitar. And the artist, what a crazy idea. The musician serving a song. If you know anything about studio musicians and session players, very often they're auditioning for gigs on other records. They're overplaying. When you went to the Shoals and you got the Swampers, they were there to serve you. Muscle Shoals, what a story. Rick Hall's story, the story of American music, and the story of race music, white and black music being recorded together by two races at the same time, being played on white and black stations all over this country. It had not happened before until Muscle Shoals. All of that here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories. 